Ryan Stan here with ASEP Frontline, joined today by Dr. Anna McFarlane with uh, one of our uh, Louisiana contingencies from LSU. And um, good chance to expand on our pediatric aspect of things. And we had some great podcasts from the uh, Pediatric Assembly in Orlando, Florida. And now we're going to add to that just a little bit, giving talks here at SEC ASEP this year in Dustin about. Uh, pediatric fever as well as pediatric head injuries and interestingly the pediatric head injuries were one we just finished and I haven't had anything cover that so far with the Everyday Medicine podcast we've talked to Dr. Uh, Bert Vargas with uh, NASCAR AMR safety team about you know the evaluation of head injuries in sports but which is a huge issue but you know one of the topics that we barely talked about and that uh, we're going to definitely talk about more with you is the pediatric side of things because in sports you know professional sports it's they got all these teams and groups that are involved with trying to screen for it and making sure they know what you're looking for and restricting and saying exactly when you can go back in but with peds you know pediatrics a lot of times it's um, folks that have been out in their high school football games or basketball or baseball or softball or whatever it may be and they come into us and then really establishing what not only the diagnosis but parameters for recovery and a follow-up plan um, you know it's when you say with Louisiana you have to have clearance from a, a licensed medical professional written uh, permission to return mm -hmm. to activities but you know defining who is going to be the one that can legitimately and safely say that your child can go back so uh, Dr. McFarland, thanks uh, for joining us. Tell us first a little bit about yourself and then, then let's roll into pediatric head injuries. Of course, thank you so much for having me. Um, so I am the program director of our combined pediatric emergency medicine program at LSU and I have a faculty role both on the pediatric side, so teaching our pediatric residents emergency medicine topics as well as teaching our ER residents about kids. Um, so really um, I see a lot of different types of learners and see a lot of different types of patients, um, both treating kids and adults um, in our ER. So as far as, as head injuries, um, I see a ton of head injuries. Um, and we're seeing them not only as you suggested with our high school patients, but um, people are getting their kids involved in sports earlier and earlier. And they're taken very seriously earlier and earlier. And so we're starting to see you know, head injuries at younger and younger ages with regard to our, our youth athletes. Mm -hmm. um, and really, although as you alluded to, our professional athletes have great sort of very well-established um, support system and ways to evaluate these patients, High schools also starting to t be taking this topic more and more seriously, um, but we're seeing a lot of our junior high athletes and our late elementary school athletes who maybe don't have that support um, as far as trainers and coaches who know kind of what to do. So ultimately, we're seeing this topic, um, you know, runs a gamut from seeing you know young kids all the way up to um, our college athletes and, and beyond. So. It's a big, huge topic. So you started off by, um, well, let's just get into it, uh, with the presentation to the emergency mm -hmm. department. As an ER mm -hmm. physician, a PA nurse practitioner, mm -hmm. whichever it may be, how are we going to screen that child when they come in with a head injury? How are we going to kind of determine our next course of evaluation? Understanding that many times when they come in is the expectation for some sort of imaging. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The, the understanding many of our parents have is that they, they are coming in for a CT. And I know we've all seen um, on 
on the sort of triage sheet, you know, chief complaint needs CT. Mm -hmm. um, and ultimately we're trying to move away from that. Ultimately, CAT scan is not really the way to diagnose a concussion. So we're using CAT scans particularly at tr trying to decide who's really at risk for an intracranial bleed, um, not who has a concussion and I need to get a CAT scan. Um, so it's really about how you're framing that question. Um, as far as sort of who is who is really at need for getting a head CT, we're following our PCARN guidelines um, in, our in our pediatric patients. And that really, um, I know we're really talking a lot about athletes right now, but PCARN has guidelines for both less than two years old and then two years and above that have been prospectively validated and, and perform really, really well. Um, those guidelines are available on the, on, um, widely um, throughout, I like the California ASAP pocket, uh, pocket cards. Those are available, but really they're, they're available through many different types of, of calculators um, that are out there. But using those PCARN guidelines to decide who really needs to get a head CT, who for sure doesn't need to get a head CT, and then that intermediate category, working with parents to with sort of shared decision making, who really needs to get one. And those are looking at who, you know, did you, they lose consciousness? Are they vomiting? Um, do they have a severe headache? And what was that mechanism? So um, particularly with our, with our athletes struck by high impact objects. So were they hit in the head with a baseball bat? That would be a severe mechanism per P-card. Um, so ultimately those are additives. So the more of those you have, the higher risk you have. Um, any one of those provides a risk at about 0 0.8 to 0.9% of a head injury. Um, so then it's talking with parents and saying, you know, what are you comfortable with? Okay, being really open with them about risks of radiation and saying, hey, I don't want to scan everybody, especially if your kid's an athlete, are they going to be at risk of future head injuries mm -hmm. down the road? Um, and, and really talking to them about risks and benefits of CAT scan. So PCARN gets us uh, to a 99.95% mm -hmm. yep. sensitivity, so about 1 in 2,000 mm -hmm. uh, chance that, you know, and, that, and that's, that's about as good as you get in medicine. Yep. If, you're, if you're getting down to a 1 in 2,000 chance of a miss, that's uh, that's pretty fantastic, and I think you're on pretty good uh, and stable ground there. So, you know, as you talked about the initial absolutes that are the yes, no for CT scan, mm -hmm. then um, the variables that you talked about there, that subcategory of the PCARN, um, that gets you into that yes, kind of yes, maybe, yes, mm -hmm. no, maybe, um, and shared decision making mm -hmm. with the family. So. You know, so you know, we're looking at the potential for CT scan, looking for potential life-threatening intracranial mm -hmm. hemorrhages, skull fractures, things like that. Um, of course, the families, they're mm -hmm. concerned, they're mm -hmm. big thing, so they've all seen the news. They're they're all on social media, and they're mm -hmm. scared of a uh, little junior getting CTE, mm -hmm. playing you know, playing little junior football, <laughs> and um, so they're there wanting to mm -hmm. know about concussions, mm -hmm. and, and clearly a um, a clinical diagnosis mm -hmm. and. The, rather than more of an imaging-based mm -hmm. diagnosis. Mm -hmm. um, how is it that you feel, you know, the best to, uh, the methods by which to assess, um, engage for uh, potential concussion syndromes in the emergency department? Yeah, so um, the CDC has really, really broad um, definition of what's a concussion. And according to the CDC, it's any traumatic head injury or traumatic brain injury, excuse me, so episodes of confusion, loss of consciousness, um, any amnesia or neurologic deficit, even if transient, um, with a current GCS of 13 to 15, and um, no obvious signs of bleed on CT. So that's what the CDC says, which is a pretty broad, uh, pretty broad definition. Um, most of 
our athletic trainers and coaches are using something called the SCAT or various different types of really standardized assessments. So the SCAT 2 is the one that's most commonly used, which, which takes into account symptoms. So did they lose consciousness? Are they having headaches? What kind of symptoms are they having? Particularly asking them short-term memory problems to assess whether they have any amnesia. So what half are we in? Who last scored? Things like that. Um, assessing their balance is really the biggest thing on physical exam. So having them stand with two feet together and their eyes closed for 20 seconds, and then on their non-dominant, just stand on one leg, which is their non-dominant leg for 20 seconds, and then with heel to toe for 20 seconds. And if they have more than five stumbles or wobbles, then that's considered abnormal. Um, and then also asking sort of those normal mental status questions that we would as physicians. What is their current level of consciousness? Can they remember three words at five minutes? Those things that we're pretty familiar with, um, with our mini mental status. So that's really the, probably the most thorough way that's reproducible and does a pretty darn good job of, of diagnosing concussion. Now, am I doing that with every single kid who comes to the ER? Um, no, but I do for some, um, and certainly understand that if those are abnormal, those are the kids that are being sent to me by their trainers. Um, and so understand that that's out there and that's, um, that's sort of what our athletic associations are using for definitions and what our um, sports men's guys are using for diagnosis of, of concussion. And that is one of the limiting factors for us mm -hmm. is, you know, we are very episodic, mm -hmm. whereas many of the professional sports, I know talking with our, the neurologist that I was referencing earlier, you know, they do the before performance and the current performance to see that relative change. And so, you know, you have that little caveat that not all, uh, not all juniors and uh, juniors are going to perform mm -hmm. similarly. So yeah. picking up those little nuances, but the biggest question you're going to get mm -hmm. right away mm -hmm. by all of these, by the kids and by the parents. When can I play? When when can I get back into play? Mm -hmm. And you 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 very much outlined a very, mm -hmm. um, very clear because mm -hmm. I mean inevitably I'm getting somebody from a soccer tournament on Friday. Like okay, that's fine, uh, but can I play tomorrow? And um, you have a pretty good stepwise plan for getting them back to activity. So, explain to uh, the listeners about that um, reintegration to activities plan that that you talked about. So the most important thing is no play today. So if in doubt, sit them out. Um, they ultimately um, never get to go back and play on the same day. So that's probably the most important. But past that, it's about when can they get back in after that. Um, and there's pretty good understanding and pretty good um, sort of evidence that suggests a graded return to play. Um, if, if you're interested in looking, the CDC website, the Heads Up website, has it all published and outlined really well. Um, so I would encourage listeners to go check, check that out. But essentially, they split it into multiple different stages. And you have to be asymptomatic at each stage for 24 hours before you get to progress to the next one. So essentially, um, if you have a significant concussion, um, then you wait. And it's essentially no physical activity until you're asymptomatic for 24 hours. That's stage one. Once you are asymptomatic at that stage, you can go on to light activity, which would include things like walking or exercise bike, no weightlifting, no real straining, anything like that. Asymptomatic at that stage for 24 hours, then you get to go to moderate activity. Okay, and eventually you get to sort of sport-specific drills that are non-contact drills, all the way up to getting you back into your contact sports. So for most of our kids who play sort of a weekly game type of sport, so your football players, um, if they remain asymptomatic and they move through these stages, they can get back in by a week. Okay? Um, but generally, if, it's, if they're significantly symptomatic today, they're not going to be playing tomorrow. 
Oh, and, that, and that's a tough uphill battle to, to have that conversation with parents and, and kids and, and having to sit down and explain why that is and what can happen if they get back in too early. Let's talk about that, that worrisome for going things going from bad to worse, getting back into things too early. Um, it seems like the biggest problem with getting back in too early is ultimately, ultimately going to be prolonged symptoms. Um, so the risk of post-concussive syndrome um, with symptoms lasting for longer and longer seems to be higher um, if they get back in too early. Other things, um, they're going to be sort of more at risk of subsequent concussions, ultimately can, can have further depression, early dementia, and then there's this sort of worry about second impact syndrome. Mm -hmm. um, lots of questions about whether second impact syndrome is a, is a thing or not. It's certainly been reported. Um, I use it in, in order to really just scare parents. I don't know if it exists or not, to be honest. Um, it's really only been a handful of cases, only described in teenagers, only in the US. It doesn't seem to be applicable um, yet or described in other populations. So um, my jury is still out on whether, whether it exists. But if I'm really struggling to try to convince people um, that they can't play, it's something that we'll talk about, um, including those prolonged symptoms is sort of resulting in all these potential symptoms, including up to this, this second impact syndrome. Parents seem to be you know, so myopic when it when they talk about, you know, with the sports and activities and a lot of that discussion seems to go a, a, a long way of one, do you, I mean, it's really, you think kids going pro uh, in this, <laughs> is going to make millions or are they going to have to get a real job one day like, like all of the rest of us? And if they are really that fantastic, you know, uh, LeBron James, if when he was 12 years old, if he had to sit out for a few weeks because of a concussion, he was still going to be, become one of the best basketball players of all time. And so, you know, it's that discussion of saying you're living in the now and what we're thinking about with your child is down the road. And that's a different discussion with adults when, you know, there is money on the line, when it's their profession, that is their job. You know, if it is that, that's a different discussion um, as opposed to now with kids who really it is, you know, about the things they learn from sports, but really it's not going to be anything other than the things they learn with teamwork and hard work and all that other stuff that they can apply to a real job down the road. Those discussions are key to families to kind of reset mm -hmm. that mindset because I find that a lot of times with, with families they have a hard time seeing long term and mm -hmm. you know kids they, mm -hmm. they live in the moment anyway. They don't think long term anyway. I mean it's uh, but adults I mm -hmm. think get caught up with that um, short short sightedness mm -hmm. and so how do you talk with families about this whole aspect of head injuries because even that list you, you mentioned the 24 mm -hmm. hours clear mm -hmm. you know you're talking about at least a five-day progression mm -hmm. with those five mm -hmm. steps um, so even if they're I mean unless it's just something that's a that's a nothing burger to start with mm -hmm. you know you got multiple days that you're going to be out of commission um, one of the things that I use is I use the coaches so um, every state um, has laws that are a little bit different, um, mm -hmm. but certainly um, coaches across the U.S. are encouraged to be educated on this. Sometimes it's, it's actually law that states that we have to be providing that education to our coaches. Um, many of our schools have athletic trainers um, involved with that school, so get them on the phone. They're usually available, especially for a high school athlete, um, and I will tell you the coach will be on your side in general. Um, so if you're really struggling with parent or, or, or athlete or you know youth athlete, um, getting their coach on your side is helpful. Um, and really kind of just discussing the long-term game and, and sort of what are the possible, um, what does post-concussive syndrome look like? And do you really want to be dealing with that two, three months down the road? 
and how is that going to affect your performance? So, um, but like I said, I encourage I encourage families to talk with their coach and their athletic trainers, people who they know better than me, and ultimately that they trust, um, because they will be on your side. Um, and then lastly, when they when they leave the ER, they all need really good follow up with sports med docs or PMNR or someone who runs a specific concussion clinic, um, and they will work with these youth athletes about getting them back in safely, and they will also sort of be on your side. And so you can say, you know what? If believe me, don't believe me, but you can follow up with them tomorrow and they'll sort of reiterate the same exact things in someone who specializes in, in youth sports. Um, so that's sort of, those are the, the outlets or it's sort of the other resources that I'll, I'll talk with parents about. We do struggle with where we're mm -hmm. going to get these folks to follow up with, whether it is, because a lot of times it's, the, the question will be, is it my general pediatrician or does it need to be a neurologist? We all know that you know, neurologist is a challenge to get mm -hmm. folks in in less than, you know, a couple months in many cases. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether there's sports medicine available, mm -hmm. is there a, how do you establish kind of that hierarchy of list? You know, it gets, you know, mm -hmm. working in a large urban setting mm -hmm. is going to be, in terms of resource accessibility, mm -hmm. it's going to be very different from working in a rural setting where, you know, you may not have a big group of, of specialists out there that can manage that. I would encourage you to touch base with, with your pediatricians if you don't know who it is, to kind of find out who that, what, what is the resource in your community. Most big urban centers will have a dedicated um, concussion clinic of mm -hmm. some sort. Um, in New Orleans, it's run by two different types of physicians. So one hospital system um, uses neurologists and the other hospital system uses PM&R. Um, whatever it is within your system, you should identify that person and kind of know when it is. So the guys in our shop, they have post-concussive clinic every Wednesday, okay, and I know that I can get that kid in on Wednesdays. So kind of know what it is in your community and who are your resources. So again, neurology is an option, although neurology is oftentimes a longer wait. PM&R is an option, sports med, ortho, or if you're in a rural setting and there isn't already a concussion clinic or post-concussion clinic set up, then using your general pediatrician. And there's lots of um, education that's being done with general pediatricians for concussion. So they should also be aware and hopefully feel comfortable with talking about this with their families. And with families understanding that, I think there's a lot of focus on sports like football, but I mean, understanding that you know, soccer, lacrosse, cheerleading, mm -hmm. all of those sports have mm -hmm. risks as well and to be, be aware of those and to be open-minded and um, doing what's best for our children mm -hmm. long-term. One of the other topics that you're talking about here, we're already, you know, we got 18 and a half minutes <laughs> into it talking about uh, about head injuries, and it's really on the mm -hmm. disposition, yeah. dischargeable side mm -hmm. of, of head injuries, but also uh, here you're going to talk about fever as mm -hmm. well, and that's a good uh, topic that we like mm -hmm. to talk about because it is a little bit of a shifting, the sands are shifting a little mm -hmm. bit the, from the three months before we had the you know, three-month guarantee before we had our um, HIV vaccine to mm -hmm. now the... Um, four-week guarantee, six-week probable guarantee, eight-week maybe mm -hmm. guarantee, mm -hmm. and off. So where are we, uh, let's talk about, let's get into the fever side of <laughs> things with children. Mm -hmm. 
in just a couple minutes, if you're asking me to summarize all of it in a couple minutes, is three months or older, you can probably go based on their symptoms, okay? And looking for occult infections, probably not necessary anymore, given the fact that our vaccines have been so successful in eliminating and reducing our rates of strep pneumo and Hib that um, our kids three months and older, probably just, you know, driving your work up. If they look sick, culture them. But if not, identifying, you know, whatever symptoms they have and going on that as your assessment. Um, and kind of if they have cough, then work them up for pneumonia. Um, mm -hmm. But ultimately not focusing on trying to identify occult infections in kids three months and older. Three months and younger, the sands are shifting. So less than 28 days, we're still, you know, still recommending a full septic workup, including tap, blood, blood cultures, UA, urine culture, um, and admission for all of those kids. Past that, so past two months, so two months to three months, um, really looking for urine, particularly, and maybe not even doing blood. Okay, that the rate after vaccination of, um, of a cult infection is so low that at this point in time, once they've been vaccinated, the, the rate of a cult bacteremia is, are, you know, are you just looking for something that no longer exists? So um, for me, I'm still getting blood in that, that four week to eight week mark. So getting a CBC and ultimately using some of the new research, in particular the step-by-step -step guidelines that were put out of, of Europe, but have been widely studied and prospectively validated in Europe as a good way to risk stratify um, those babies who may be um, actually low risk enough to discharge home, so without an LP. So certainly get the LP in babies 28 days and less, um, past 28 days using step-by-step -step to risk stratify and hopefully being able to discharge some of those babies even without an LP. And then babies past two months, um, is the data really even you know, supporting us getting blood cultures and blood work, looking again for occult infections that may not actually be there anymore. You mentioned the follow-up, you know, mm -hmm. the, the close follow-up. That is mm -hmm. going to be a big determinant. Mm -hmm. Working at the university setting before your follow-up, maybe. I mean, peds was mm -hmm. always a little bit better than adults mm -hmm. anyway, but, you know, with peds, I'd say, hey, yeah, we can follow up in a week or so, mm -hmm. but, you know, a lot of community-based folks, they can get that 24, that mm -hmm. 12 or 24-hour recheck, that first thing the next morning mm -hmm. if you're overnight, um, and that is very nice, so making sure you have a defined plan and they understand the plan and why you're doing that plan mm -hmm. um, for follow-up. You talked about the cultures and you know talking with uh, Richard Cantor about his you know with down there the peds assembly in mm -hmm. Orlando um, with that you know we make that transition from you can do the studies and you're not likely to find anything but you are more likely to get that false positive with those blood cultures uh, less than a single digit uh, you know less than one percent chance of a significant bacteremia in kids over that over that age and now we're getting blood cultures, which that's, I think, one of the biggest drawbacks okay. we're going to have with all these mm -hmm. new uh, sepsis screen and mm -hmm. that we're doing where everybody gets blood cultures, yeah. that we get this huge number of false positives mm -hmm. and we're exposing folks to harm and procedures and everything else on data that's bad to start mm -hmm. with. But, you know, with the pediatric lumbar puncture, uh, as two weeks ago, we had a, a baby come in that came in two weeks old and you know, you're used, to, you're used to them being completely nothings. Mm -hmm. um, you're used to, of course, during flu season, you get your RSV kids, you get your um, human metanumavirus kids, you get your flu ki kids, um, and there's pretty clear plans, but, you know, mm -hmm. a legit two-week-old that ended up with E. coli, bacteremia, mm -hmm. um, you know, TAP was negative, but, 
you send them there and you finally got one that you did all the antibiotics on you feel good because it got there got everything done and um, the way that it was supposed to and it kind of resets things because you know it's it's always a shocker when you run to that room on that newborn and they've got that lo their little bundle of joy and you said oh here's what we're going to do to this child it's going to be torture yeah. for you for us to go through this but here's the reason why yeah. uh, why we're going to do that and I think it's and I, I still unfortunately I see a lot of people trying to brush off the the full workup in a legit febrile mm -hmm. less than 28 days. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got this. And so, you know, touch a little bit on that. You know, I've got a, a source that I think is there mm -hmm. because this family, the whole, everybody's got their viral upper respiratory infection mm -hmm. and now the two week old baby comes in with fever. Mm -hmm. You know, why you can't just stop with kind of what would theoretically make more sense in right. the kid over three months. I think part of the concern is we're all looking for that other reason, right? Mm -hmm. We all want to kind of look for the reason that we don't have to do the LP because no one wants to torture a family. No one wants to stick a kid if we don't have to. Um, and so everyone wants to say, oh, well, they have RSV, so they clearly can't also have you know, X, Y, or Z. They clearly can't also have bacteremia. They can't have two sources, because that's not, you know, we're taught in medical school, it's Occam's razor, right? They can only have one thing at a time, and that one answer is gonna pull all the things together. Um, well, in truth, kids have up to eight to 12 viral infections a year, okay? Um, they can last weeks at a time. So kids can essentially be viral positive more than half of the year. It doesn't necessarily mean that the fever that they have is currently because of that virus. And kids will test positive for viruses even if they're not clinically sick. Um, and so ultimately, while yes, if they are positive for a virus, it does decrease your pretest probability that you're gonna find um, a bacteria. It oftentimes doesn't bring it down enough to be negligible. So, you know, in some kids, they can be in the 10, 15-ish percent risk of having an SBI. Maybe if they have a positive virus, it brings that down to five to seven percent. I'm just kind of estimating numbers um, based on sort of any different groups of populations. But is five to seven percent enough for you to say, oh, I don't need to do that? And the answer is in that in that age group, less than 28 days, the answer is no, you still ultimately have to do the full workup. You don't get to say, oh, they have a virus, you know, and that that's, an, that's enough for me to say that's what their fever is coming from. And so I don't have to do the LP. Unfortunately, kids less than 28 days still need the full septic workup, even if you have another source um, and still need to get admitted fever. So um, if mom comes in and says, you know, my kid felt hot, um, I think that they had a fever. Um, ultimately, if that kid's less than 28 days, I'm probably gonna get blood and urine, but I'm generally not gonna put a kid through an LP based on, um, based on a subjective temp, mm -hmm. okay? I think one of the questions also is, did you treat that? So if parents said, um, I think they had a fever at home, but then they went ahead and gave Tylenol or Motrin, that's a different story than they had a fever at home, I didn't treat them, and they're afebrile in the ED. If they got Tylenol or Motrin, you have to assume, I think, that they had that temperature because any temperature you get now has been altered by that antipyretic. So if it was untreated at home um, in a high-risk baby, so less than 28 days, I'm probably gonna get the urine and the blood, but not, a, not CSF. Um, maybe the same at 100.2, um, but I'm generally kind of a stickler for the 100.4 if, if we're checking temps. Um, Past that, if mom says subjective fever and the kid's two, two months old um, and is well appearing and otherwise 
doesn't, you know, doesn't have a fever in the ED, I may not do um, any blood at all and just do some urine. Um, ultimately, in that age group, UTIs are going to be way, way more common, really in any age group, but in that age group in particular, UTI is more common than any bacteremia. So I may do a little screening um, urine. If the urine's negative, then discharge them. Um, we talk about bundling. I will um, recheck, so I'll allow sort of a recheck 10 to 15 minutes later mm -hmm. um, once I've taken the 10 layers of clothes off the kid um, to recheck in the ED. Um, if that temperature comes back down to a normal temp, um, then you can probably attribute that elevated temp just to the over bundling. Your husband's not ruining, not raising the low bar that we've <laughs> established as men over generations, is he? Um, he's a pretty good dad. Goodness gracious, we're going to have to have a talk with him. I mean, we have lived very happily with having to only achieve a minimal amount of success with our children, and yet here he goes way, way overachieving. Um, uh, and that's, that'll be interesting is to see, you know, I think a lot of those studies were done, were done, you know, in this days gone by approach to where it was the mom that typically did that and, and was typically right with that subjective fever thing. But you know, with these change, with these shifting roles, and a lot of men staying home with and, and being with the families, we'd be interested to see if they can get those ninja Jedi <laughs> skills that the mothers have demonstrated for uh, uh, for generations. And you can let uh, your husband know that we will be watching him, and okay. if he if he gets out of he gets out of line and, and starts to get too many high expectations for us fathers, we, we may have to we may I'll have to have an intervention. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so. Um, Dr. Anna McFarland um, here at SECA set. Um, fantastic information. I think anything with kids, I think is something that always makes us physicians uh, as well as our um, PAs, nurse practitioners, uh, nursing colleagues a little nervous um, with peds because I think the, the risk is low, but the price is potentially very high. And, you know, if you, if you get, and it's hard to say with somebody who's 85 years old, if you miss a you know, urinary tract infection, you know, they've, it's not great, but they're also 85. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with a child, you know, we, we, ha we do have to have such a, a low threshold for miss rates in, in this mm -hmm. population. So I think any of this information is fantastic, helping us not only with um, the information, but also confidence when we walk into those rooms with our pediatric uh, patients, especially in community settings where, mm -hmm. you know, we run 10 to 20% peds as opposed to you know, working in the pediatric ERs where everything is, uh, everything is peds and so you get a lot of exposure. So if folks have more questions, um, how can they get in touch with you, whether uh, via email, social media, or, or however uh, you like to be contacted? So email is probably the easiest. Uh, my email address is amcfar at lsuhsc.edu. Fantastic. I appreciate it and um, thank you for the information and the talks here. Um, invest in on the topic and I'm sure we'll add this to our we'll bundle it with our big group of uh, pediatric that is we're hoping to come out and uh, plan to come out with a CME bundle for our uh, members out there as a, as a way of uh, putting all this information together because I think it is fantastic information and for me you can contact me youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com youreverydaymedicine at gmail.com and at everydaymed on twitter and until next time I'm Dr. Ryan Stanton and this has been some ASAP Frontline.